Amen. So we all have a handout, I hope, and a pen to write with. And we will continue to look into these unseen things. Of course, it's a play on words because everything that we're talking about is seen in Scripture, but it's just not seen to you and I. And if you haven't been here for the last couple of weeks, well, I'm sorry. By the time tonight's over, you'll think I have completely lost my mind. That's okay. Let's pray, and we're going to talk about some of these amazing realities in Scripture. Father, thank you that, Lord, at the very moment of salvation... We have security. We have peace. We have an unstoppable plan that has taken effect in our life. That, Lord, though there's nothing that the powers of darkness and evil can do to separate us from you, Lord, we all know the reality of the struggles we face, the trials that come, the challenges of trying to be light in a dark world. And Lord, the reality is tonight that evil cannot stop you in the heavenly realms. It cannot thwart your plan. It cannot defeat you in any way. But Lord, that does not mean there's not a battle that rages even now, a struggle that wars even in this moment. And so, Father, we pray that you'd give us ears to hear tonight, that you would illumine our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we might comprehend the things that you desire to show us, Lord. And we thank you for yet another illustration of the reality of the depths and the beauty and splendor of your word and how... You continue to reveal amazing and wonderful truths to us, no matter how familiar a passage may be. We give you glory and praise and honor in Jesus' name. Amen. So, part three, over the last couple of weeks, we have um, seen that you'll have to advance it, Don. I don't know what's happening here. Over the past couple of weeks, we've seen that uh, God's relationship with His spiritual creation is a template for how He relates to His earthly creation. And so what we're seeing is that Scripture gives us some indications and some information about what's going on in the spiritual realm, and we see that it's really a template for how He relates to us on earth. And we talked about how Our biblical information is often filtered by our presuppositions and our traditions that we, we, whatever we hear and read in Scripture, we're filtering it through what we've always sort of thought to be the way things are. And so what happens and what has been so challenging about this time that we spend together is that even uh, myself, I find myself just so 
annoyed even internally because I realize how many times I have passed over these truths because I just assumed that they were the way that I you know, think that they are. And it's been convicting for me to just be reminded that um, we need God to give us eyes to see what it is that He is teaching us in Scripture. And so we, from here forward, I just want to sort of set a, a precedent, whether it's myself or Pastor Matt teaching in this series. We're going to refer to God's spiritual creation as sons of God, and that's from Job 38, or the divine counsel from Psalm 82. Those are going to be the two terms that we'll use to describe God's spiritual creation. Now, the sons of God, what we learned about them is that they reside in the heavenly realm, that they have free will, just like you and I do, that when God uh, creates, He creates out of nothing. Now, all creation is not equal. Whenever God creates in His image, that must have free will because if it doesn't, if we don't have free will, we wouldn't be created in the image of God because God certainly is not a robot. He has free will. And so we're created with free will and we see that uh, these angelic beings that God's created, the sons of God, they also have free will. They're also involved in accomplishing God's will just like we are. They're given responsibility just as we are the hands and feet of God on earth. They have responsibilities to accomplish and to assist God in His work in heaven. And they are above the angels. And so oftentimes... The, angels makes, the, the Bible makes a distinction between angels and archangels. And as you'll see tonight, we're, as we've been going through these various passages, we see that, that actually the sons of God or the divine counsel will sometimes be intermingled with the archangels. So there's clearly a hierarchy in God's spiritual creation. Now, the principle that we need to lay out tonight as we begin this particular study is that we just need to establish, I'm just trying to make sure that every week as we're sort of stacking these truths on top of each other, that we are also putting some immovable blocks in place about what we know about the character and nature of God. And tonight we're going to put the principle in place that God is utterly consistent. He is utterly consistent. And so what God does in one arena is what God is going to do in another arena. In other words, God is, according to Scripture in Hebrews chapter 13, the same yesterday, today, and forever. In James 1, He's the giver of every good and perfect gift that comes down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. He is utterly consistent. And so God uses lesser beings like you and me to get things done on earth. So why would it be a stretch for us to believe that he does the same thing in the heavenly realm? He uses us on earth and we certainly are lesser beings to say the least. And yet he gives us this great responsibility. If you really stop and think about this, it's what's so astonishing about it is, is that God allows us to participate 
in the process of redemption, which is the, the one thing that God has the most invested in, right? So the most important endeavor that there is concerning humanity, God, in His uh, perfect sovereign wisdom and design, uses us as His hands and feet, His agents, His ambassadors, if you will, to proclaim and spread the gospel and to fill the earth with His glory. So now, tonight, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 11 and the familiar story of the Tower of Babel. Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with which its top will be in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come and let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Aparkashad two years after the flood. And then Shem lived after he fathered Aparkashad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. Now, the decision to build the Tower of Babel is an attempt to avoid being scattered. That's what the Bible just told us in Genesis 11. So the reasoning behind, hey, let's build a temple, is to not be scattered over the face of the earth, right? So rather than make the world like Eden to spread the knowledge and rule of God everywhere, the people wanted to bring God down to one spot. So now what you see is this very strong similarity between the Tower of Babel and what's going on in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. In other words, the sin in the Garden was we want to be like God. We don't want to be under God's rule. We don't want to be under His authority. We want to know what He knows and see what He sees. We want to be like Him. Now, at the Tower of Babel, it's we're going to build this tower because we don't want God to do what God's going to do. God had already determined he was going to scatter them, and they decided they were going to build a tower to stop him from scattering them. Obviously, that didn't work, but the point is there's a strong similarity between these two. Now, if you remember any sort of world history class in school, you would remember that as soon as... Uh, Egypt comes up, there's always in every history textbook that you'll ever see with regards to Egypt, there's lots of talk about these ziggurats. You know what I'm talking about? The towers that they built. 
And so Egyptians were famous for building these tall towers and wanting to reach up into the heavens and to reach up to the, the gods in the sky. And that was sort of their standard uh, you know, building practice. That's what they were known for. Now, because the tower was an effort to thwart God's plan, He separated and scattered humanity, creating the list of nations that's in Genesis 10. Now, it is very important for you to understand, because what I'm about to say in a few minutes could be a little difficult for you to take in. So you have to understand the way the Bible gives us, dispenses this information to us in Genesis 10, Genesis 11, and Genesis 12. It's very important that you see why those three chapters are back to back to back and why they say the things that they say, because it's really astonishing in light of what we're about to say. Now, is this all that happened at the, guard, at the uh, Tower of Babel? Is, is this a story in the Scripture about people wanting to build a tower to thwart God's plan to keep from being scattered, and God scatters them and confuses their language, therefore now it's called the Tower of Babel? Well, look at Deuteronomy chapter 32, and look at what the Bible says in Deuteronomy about the Tower of Babel. The Scripture says, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when He divided mankind, He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is His people Jacob, his allotted heritage. Now, you might need to reread that for just a moment. You might need to just take that in. That scripture is referring to the Tower of Babel. Now, you may have in your possession or at your house or whatever you choose to use a translation of scripture that changes verse 8 in Deuteronomy 32 because there's no framework or understanding for what this scripture actually says. And so a lot of translations say that he fixed the borders of the people according to the numbers of the sons of Israel. Now, unfortunately, all these years, that never bothered me. It should have bothered me because Israel didn't exist at the Tower of Babel. So how could it have possibly be the sons of Israel? It cannot be the sons of Israel. Thankfully, we know what the Hebrew words are here because we have the Dead Sea Scrolls to confirm exactly what it says. It says that he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. What in the world does that mean? What happened physically at the Tower of Babel is different than what happened spiritually at the Tower of Babel. In other words, what happened here at the Tower of Babel is different than what the Bible says happened in the heavenly realm at the Tower of Babel. The Bible says that at the Tower of Babel, God allotted the nations to the sons of God or to members of His divine counsel. That He... As he dispersed humanity across the globe, he also dispersed his heavenly creation across the globe. And then 
areas of the earth not only had people groups who spoke certain languages, but they also had spiritual authorities, if you will. They had divine creation. These sons of gods were divided up and given authority over these areas of the earth. Now, it explains a whole lot when you start to think about it. First of all, it's the Bible's explanation for why other nations came to worship other gods. In other words, we just take for granted. This is the crazy thing about this. How many times have I read the entire Old Testament over and over and over? I've preached through every single text we've used in this whole entire series. And yet, we just take for granted that as soon as the Tower of Babel incident happens, we immediately have these nations springing up all over the place that have these specific gods. This nation over here serves this God. This nation over here serves this God. This one, this one. Where did all of them come from? I mean, certainly there were people worshiping false gods before the Tower of Babel. But the point being is you had all the people together that spoke one language and did one thing. They dispersed across the globe and no one ever stopped to think, well, now, wait a minute. That doesn't, well, why, why did they suddenly start worshiping all these different gods? Why did that happen? And at the same time, God said, now, he, he according to Deuteronomy 32, he dispersed the land and he dispersed the in the heavenly realm, authorities over to those boundaries. But then it says that he decided to create a new nation that he calls his portion. Did you catch that in verse 9? Which is Israel. So there's one place on earth that is different from all other places on earth. Israel is unlike any other place. Nobody got authority over Israel. Did you catch that? It's his. Everywhere else is treated the same initially except for Israel. So again, I don't know how much more emphatically I can uh, remind you, reiterate, teach you implore you to understand the utter importance as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ that you as a person, we as a people, must always stand with Israel. It is absolutely essential for you to understand. And all of this prognosticating about the end times and all of this nonsense going around about this, that, and the other. Let me tell you something. It all hinges on. It all swirls around. It, every single thing about it is all linked to Israel. Israel is the key to understanding God's sort of uh, plan for the nations and His ultimate plan of redeeming the nations. Israel. So therefore, what happens in the... Now, 
In chapter 10, you have a list of nations. You go home, and I want you to read Genesis 10, 11, and 12. And here's what you're going to find. You're going to read Genesis 10, and there's going to be a list of nations that don't exist. That's what it is. Because they don't exist because in chapter 11 at the Tower of Babel, they're created. And then the very next chapter, God meets Abraham and says, I'm going to make you a people. That doesn't happen until after Babel. God's portion, when God meets Abraham and says, I'm going to make you a people and the world's going to be blessed by your family and your family's going to outnumber the stars in the sky. That is after Babel. That is the creation of his portion. That's his portion right there. So I want you to think about this. The rest of the Old Testament is about the God of Israel and his people. The Israelites, they're in conflict with the gods of other nations and the people who live in them. From this point forward, all you are going to read in the Old Testament is a conflict between the Israelites and everybody else on earth and all the gods that they serve. Am I wrong? That's what the entire scripture is in the Old Testament from this point forward. Because a cataclysmic shift has just taken place at the Tower of Babel that has unleashed all of this confusion all over the place. Now, God never intended for the nations to be forever forsaken. And they won't be. But the idea here is not to think that, well, he as he scattered the nations and confused their language, that this is just the way it's going to be. And that's, no. Now, he tells Abraham, he says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, let's just think about this statement for a second. I will bless those who bless you, those who oppose you, I will curse. Now, imagine the earth now divided into all these nations with, these very, with different uh, angelic rulers, if you will. Not messenger angels, but divine council members, according to Job. So depending upon whether or not that ruler or power or principality is loyal to God is going to determine whether that boundary on earth is what? Blessed or cursed. Now here's what I want you to think about. I told you you were going to get a headache. Now I want you to think about this. All over the globe, all over this globe, I have been from one end of the globe to the other. I've been in the poorest nations on earth. I've seen all the, the varying situations, circumstances, people, groups, all over the world. Now, I've been to country after country after country that has the same climate. They have the same 
natural resources as the United States of America. And yet, the country is filled with people that are starving to death. Explain that to me. Explain to me how generation after generation after generation of millions upon millions upon millions of dollars and delegations of people have gone to all of these nations and taught them how to farm, taught them how to irrigate the ground, taught them how to do this, taught them how to do that. And what happens? Nothing. They're starving. Meanwhile, you can go to places that have uh, natural resources beyond anything this land here could ever imagine or dream of. And the same thing happens. People are starving. People are impoverished. People are malnourished. And yet everything around them is just bearing fruit like crazy. Why? I'm not done. On top of that, explain to me how you can go to some places that are barren deserts. And yet the ground produces in abundance beyond our wildest explanation. Where might that be? You ever, you ever been to Israel? You ever seen Israel? It looks like the Sahara Desert. And yet the ground just abounds with resources. There's nobody starving in Israel. Have you ever wondered about that? I mean, I don't know how many times I've wandered down the street in some, you know, third world country thinking to myself, what is going on? While they're, you know, tying bananas to the top of poles and sticking them in the ground and dancing around to worship the pole god. I stood in a, in a, uh, a shrine to the monkey god in India. Across the street was, a, was the biggest trash dump I've ever seen in my life. It looked like it went to the ends of the earth. This thing must have been 10,000 acres of garbage literally across the street. There were children just walking barefooted, just digging through the trash. They looked like human skeletons trying to stay alive in the garbage dump. Across the street from that dump is a giant shrine to the monkey gods where people come and drop their food off to this big two-story tall monkey. And there, of course, there's monkeys all over the place and the monkeys eat all the food and they're big and fat and lazy and their children are starving to death across the street. And you scratch your head and say, I'm missing some information here. You can't just tell me that these people don't see kids starving. You can't just say, oh, they're just blinded. No, no, there's more than that. Listen, that's their kids. There's something more going on here. It just doesn't add up. Unless what the Apostle Paul knew, which is what we're talking about tonight, is a reality. Look at what Paul says in Acts 17. He says, And 
And he, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. So as in Eden, God then in his scattering of the nations and in his boundaries and in his segmenting of the earth and scattering of the people, his plan is that all the nations would respond to him. In other words, look back at Genesis 12, the last part of that. First you have bless those who bless you and curse those who dishonor you. And then the final culmination of that is and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. But that's not today. So what happened here is that the gods who had been set over the nations interfered with this plan. Is that some nations rebelled. Some nations rejected. Some nations went their own way. Remember, we're talking about what's happening on earth is a, it's in heaven is a template for what's happening on earth. And so there's free will. And just like we freely choose to, to rebel against God, the same thing's going on in the heavenly realm. And so you've got areas of the earth where nations and groups of nations are rebelling against God and therefore these nations are plundered into darkness and all of these things are going on the 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 Genesis 12 promise or curse depending on how you look at it is in effect and it also explains some things about me and you because you've all wondered I've wondered. We say things like, well, the reason that God has blessed the United States of America is because we have chosen to follow God. Because we have founded our nation on Biblical principles. Because we were seeking uh, freedom to worship God freely and unpersecuted. Is it really just us? Or is there something else at play? It is true what I just said. But it's not us. It's also that this nation didn't forsake God. Therefore, it's been blessed, which also causes us to think, which means that as we, I mean, these are all things we know, we talk about it all the time. Well, the reason we have the problems that we have is because we're leaving our foundation, because we're becoming less and less a Christian nation. Well, guess what? Let me tell you what this has convicted me about. Oh, it's a whole lot bigger than that. Ladies and gentlemen, it's way bigger than that. We stay on the path we're on now, and things could get really crazy.
Now we're going to go back and read Psalm 82 that we looked at in the first week, and, but we're going to see it with new eyes. Now, I mean, this is why we have to go in small chunks here. It takes a long time to work through every single word in the original language and to get to, you know, get through these texts and then to process what they're saying. Now we're going to go back and let's look again at what's going on. Psalm 82. God has taken his place in the divine council. In, in the midst of the Elohim, little g gods, he holds judgment. He says, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Pause. Again, who is God speaking to? These divine council members, right? Yes. So he is having a conversation with them, and he's saying, how long are you going to judge unjustly? Then he goes on. He says, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They shall neither, they have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, You are God's Elohim, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. You understand? You see what's happening here? Psalm 82 gives us a glimpse into God rebuking the rebellious members of the divine council. In other words, it's right there. The nations that they've led astray. Now, not all, but these particular ones. And look at what they've done. They have been unjust and they've showed partiality to the wicked. And look at what they have not done. This is big. What they have not done is they have not given justice to the weak and to the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. I said Wednesday night, I said, for some time now I've been perplexed by this disconnect between the things that God does in this fellowship and the way that that translates to everything else I know about uh, church and our culture. In other words, time and time again, God seems to do things here that He would normally would only happen in a church four or five times the size of this fellowship. And I always scratch my head and in amazement at the at at 
the things that are accomplished here by, I mean, let's be honest, it may seem large, but not compared to what's being accomplished here. Do you see what I'm saying? It's a disconnect. I mean, I, I, I talk to people who, who call me, who lead congregations that are five times the size of this, six, seven, eight times the size of this. And they're, you know, how did you, how do you do this orphan ministry? How do you, how have you been able to uh, move into this care, into the foster system and all the things that have happened? And I'm like, I don't know. And then I read Psalm 82 and I start thinking, hmm. The heart of God is to give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maybe you think it's a coincidence that we're having these conversations now. Why didn't I see this two years ago, three years ago? Why didn't I ever see this before? Why now? That's exactly why. So he says to them, he says, you're gods. Elohim. Sons of the Most High, Yahweh, one and only God, no competition, Most High. He says, but you, because of the disobedience, because of your lack of accomplishing the task which I set before you, which was to draw the nations to me to finish out the blessing of Genesis 12, because you didn't do that, you're going to lose your immortality. Look at God's reaction was swift and harsh. These gods would lose their immortality and die like men. Now, Two weeks ago when I talked about Psalm 82, when we started this whole conversation, oh man, I went home that Wednesday night. Lisa said, how was church tonight? I said, oh boy, I never seen so many blank looks in my life. I said, I, we'll, we'll see who shows up next Wednesday. And I understand that's how I felt. What? These gods are going to lose their immortality and they're going to die like men. But you just have to stop. Get your filter out of the picture. And just begin to, to study and look at what does the Bible say. And then you realize this is the same exact punishment that's associated with the end times. In Isaiah 34, the same exact punishment. Now look, look at Isaiah 34. Do you know what Isaiah 34, what the context of Isaiah 34 is? Isaiah 34 is a reference to the great white throne judgment, the judgment of the earth, the, the, the day of the Lord, okay? Listen to what the Scripture says. 
Draw near, O nations, to hear, and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear, and all that fills it, the world, and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations, and furious against all their host. What? How many times have I preached on that text? You've read it, you've heard me say it. And we just went right by it, didn't we? What, what, what? Host. Who's the host? What do we what what just happened here? He's furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction and given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll, and the host shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. Now, is that just the people who have rejected Christ being judged? Clearly not. It's them and who else? They're what? Host. They're being judged. All who have rejected and their host. So what does this mean? Well, it means that on this earth, ground is either holy, meaning dedicated to Yahweh, or it is the domain of another God. It is either, in reference to, let's see if the power stays on, our discussion this morning, under the control of the domain of light or the domain of darkness. One or the other. All right, look at Daniel chapter 10, verse 13. The prince of the kingdom of Persia. Remember Daniel's having this uh, vision. He's explaining this vision in Daniel chapter 10. And he uses this language, the prince of the kingdom of Persia. I mean, I just taught through Daniel last year. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. Princes. 2 Kings chapter 5. It's the story of Naaman. One of my favorite stories in the scripture. Naaman, the great Syrian general. He has leprosy. There's no cure for leprosy. There's, no, there's nothing he can do. He is rotting away slowly from his disease. But he is the second most powerful person in the most powerful nation on earth. He has all the wealth of the world at his disposal. He has all the power and authority and military might of the world at his disposal. But nothing can save him from death by leprosy. 
And as he is struggling to figure out a solution to his problem, a little slave girl that we'll never know her name because it's not recorded in Scripture until we meet her in heaven, a little Israelite slave girl says to him, Master, there's a man in my land who can heal your leprosy. Now, when you've got zero hope and zero chance and zero options, even if it's a little slave girl, I don't know if she was 10, 11, 12, 15, I don't know, but you believe her. So what does he do? He gets his chariot and his men, and he gets a whole sack full of gold and a whole sack full of silver, and he takes off to go see this man, this prophet of God. And you know the story. He rides up to Elisha's house. And you got to picture the scene now. It's this some modest little shack in the middle of nowhere. And all of a sudden, that you know, the ground's rumbling. And this giant chariot and all these men with these armor and, and you know, bronze weapons and such is coming over the mountain. You know, and everybody's just scattering like, what on earth is happening? It, they pull up to Elisha's house. And, you know, I'm imagining that there's like this line of guards from the front door all the way down and so the first somebody goes up and goes and the door opens and they all move out of the way and there's Naaman standing there with his probably all covered up where nothing shows but his hands and he says I want to speak to the man of God and the servant says hold on a second and shuts the door comes back, opens the door, and says, he said for you to go dunk in the river Jordan seven times. And Naaman is furious. What? How dare you not come to the door and speak to me face to face? How dare you tell me that I'm going to go dunk in your filthy, nasty river? Don't you know the land that I'm from? That we have the most beautiful, clean, crystal clear rivers in the world? And I've come all this way to your run-down, rotten little podunk village? And you want me to go dunk in your... And you don't even have the decency to come out here and speak to me? And he gets back in his chariot, loads all his men up, and away he goes home to die of his leprosy. And as he's going, the little servant girl says, you know, I would have tried it. I'm just saying. You got nothing to lose. And Naaman says, stop the chariot. Turns around. Goes to the Jordan River. Dunks in the river, one time leprosy, two times leprosy, three times leprosy, four times leprosy, five times leprosy, six times leprosy, seven times clean. And so what does he do? He goes back to Elisha's house. And he calls Elisha out, and Elisha comes out this time. I mean, you got to love Elisha. I mean, this cat is not intimidated by anybody. And Elisha comes out now that he's like, "Uh uh-huh, I tried to tell your big ignorant self. So he comes out and Naaman says, I know that there is no other God but the God that you serve, the God of Israel. And I want to give you this giant sack of gold. And Elisha says, I will not take your gold, for God does what God does. And he says, well, I'm going to give you this silver. He said, I'm not going to take your silver. 
I don't want payment for anything. And what does what, what is the response of Naaman? He says, which you've read and never understood because I preached on it a thousand times and just... He says, 2 Kings 5, 17, then Naaman said, if not, if you won't take all my money, then please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifices to any other god but to the Lord, to any other little g Elohim, but to Yahweh. Can I ask you a question? Why would a person want to take two mule loads of dirt home? Does that make any sense to you? Unless the ground is holy. Unless the Bible is telling us that the ground means something. That it matters. Notice, when you're reading the New Testament, notice how Paul uses specific terminology to describe all of these things that are going on in the heavenly realm. Notice this. He says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20, that... He worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above. Now, now what's the context in the heavenly places? Far above all the rule, underline that. Authority, underline that. Power, underline that. And dominion, underline that. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. Ephesians chapter 3. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the underlined rulers and underlined authorities and underlined heavenly places. Ephesians chapter 6. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We all know this verse. But against what? Underlined principalities, underlined powers, against underlined rulers of the darkness of this age, against underlined spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Look at Colossians 1. We read this this morning. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether underlined the word thrones or underlined dominions or underlined principalities or underlined powers. All things were created through him and for him. Now, what do all of these terms have in common? Why does Paul refer to all of this as powers and principalities? We don't. What? Why? Why is he using this terminology? Every one of these terms describe geographical rulership. They're geographical rulership. A power, a principality, an authority. Listen, a principality is not just some random thing, is it? No, a principality is a defined area, right? Right? A principality. A ruler doesn't just rule everything. He rules something. These are defined powers, principalities. They define things. They have boundaries. They have limitations. Why is Paul using this terminology? If he's just talking about random things that are just all over the place and have no boundary or it wouldn't make any sense. God's presence sanctifies 
the ground and makes it holy. All right? I want you to follow my progression here, okay? You ready? Did I lose you? Are you with me? Follow this progression. Initially, the presence of Yahweh resided in the tabernacle. Remember how this goes. As Moses comes down off of Sinai with the Ten Commandments, and all of that uh, problem is situated, what is the, the next thing that you read about in your D group was the elaborate uh, directions and specifications for the tabernacle, right? Where the glory of God would dwell. Am I right? So the, the presence of God initially resided in the tabernacle. Then... Once Israel moved across Jordan into the promised land, something changed. We no longer have the tabernacle, do we? We moved into Canaan, and now the presence of God is where? In the temple. Because now we, don't, we move from a tabernacle to a temple. So the promise of God is in a temple. Now, when God resided in the tabernacle... Did the children of God, uh, were they Israelites? Where's Israel? When they're wandering, where's Israel? There is no Israel. They're just God's people. They're Israelites, but I mean, they're just wandering. They don't have a land. They're just going around. Now, wherever they stop and set up camp, they put the tabernacle in a very specific place in the center of the camp, right? And pointing a very specific direction, and then they set up camp all the way around it, right? Now, let me ask you a question. Is Where is the ground holy? God resides in the Holy of Holies in the center of the tabernacle, right? And is it just the ground the tabernacle's on that's holy? Now, think about this for a second. No. What's holy? The border of the entire camp. Wherever they set up camp, the camp is holy ground. Remember when, they, uh, when Rahab, the harlot, helped the spies so she was saved, her and her family were saved from Jericho. And so when they went back, but this, they didn't have the temple yet, when they went back, what, where did she reside? Outside the what? The camp. How come she had to be outside the camp? Because she can't come in the camp because the ground's holy. Wherever you set up, it's holy ground around the, around the camp, Right? Then we move to the temple. And when you get to the temple, where's the ground holy? After Israel took residence in Canaan, Yahweh's presence was in the temple. And the temple became holy ground, right? And God's people began to have this land, if you will. They had a home. Then... Believers, now the presence of Yahweh indwells believers, me and you. We now are the temple of God, according to the New Testament. Now, what we have is we have holy ground around the camp, wherever the tabernacle was set up. Then we have God's presence dwelling in the temple. 
Then we have God's presence dwelling in people. People, his people become the temple, right? Okay. So this means that believers, the body of Christ, are now the new people of God, the new Israel. Now, understand, we don't replace Israel. This isn't replacement theology. We don't replace Israel, as some people believe. We are now the the manifestation of, the representation of, we're his people, grafted in by Jesus Christ. So Paul says in Galatians, for you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, neither there is now nor Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What promise? What's the promise? Genesis 12. That's the promise, right? So now, if where God's presence dwells, the ground is holy, and it went from the tabernacle to the temple to us, we believers, and the places where believers are gathered are holy ground. Sin must be expelled. Now you gotta you gotta hang with me and let's wrap this thing together. So what am I saying? Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying that right now you're on holy ground. This ground isn't holy because it has a building on it with a funny pointed thing on the roof. That doesn't make it holy. It's not holy because it has a sign out front that says it's a church. That's not why it's holy. This ground is holy because you are on it. That's why it's holy. And let me tell you something. When you go home tonight, when you walk in your front door, guess what you walk into? Holy ground. You know what happens when you go to work and sit at your desk? That's holy ground. Wherever you go, you are the temple now. Wherever your feet trod is holy ground. And the kingdom advances now by us walking forward progressing in our evangelization of the world one soul at a time. Bit of ground by bit of ground by bit of ground by bit of ground. Which explains a whole lot of things. For example, 1 Corinthians 5 has never made any sense to me whatsoever. It's just one of those things where I shrug my shoulders and go, well, and I just say what my filter tells me to say. But Paul says to the church at Corinth, he says, when you're dealing with a brother who is in sexual immorality and refuses to repent, what do you do? 1 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul says, well, when you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, are you getting it? Are you getting it? You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now I want to ask you a question because I know you all have a filter for that verse. But I want to ask you an honest question. How do you and me deliver a person to Satan? Please explain that to me. You've never delivered anybody to Satan. What does that mean? 
He didn't say, you know, teach him a lesson. He didn't say, you know, just, uh, you know, do something that's going to get his attention. He said specifically, literally, deliver him to Satan. Now, how do you do that? Do you know how to do that? Because if you do, I'd love for you to tell me. How do you do it? Here's how you do it. You remove him from holy ground. You remove him from where all of his temples are. When you remove him from the church, not the building, from God's people, he's what? Delivered unto. He's on what? Ground in the domain of what? Darkness. You see, your desk at work may be holy ground, but all the other cubicles around you may be in the domain of darkness. And there is a spiritual war that's going on. Your home may be holy ground, but the neighbor on the left may be darkness. The neighbor on the right may be darkness. The one across the street may be darkness. There's a war going on. A war for ground. A war for territory. A war where light is battling darkness in a very real sense. And you and I are the carriers of light. Our feet represent the presence of God. Wherever I go, God goes with me. It's more than he'll never leave me or forsake me. It's that you represent his presence everywhere you go. Now think about that for a minute. Think about all the time we waste. Think about all the stupid things that we do with our time. Think about all the opportunities that we don't pay attention to. And the reality is, is that you are a light bearer. Your feet create holy ground wherever they go. Which now explains to me all of the phenomenon that I've experienced when I'm going around the world in these dark nations. Now I get it. I get why when I walk into the jungle in Brazil that two miles away the Macumba drums start beating. And for the last 12 years I've wondered to myself, how do they know that I'm here? They know. They know. Because wherever my feet go, light goes. See, to be expelled from the church was to be put back on unholy territory. That's where sin belongs. There's no room for sin in the ground in which you're trotting. You're a, you're a temple of light. All the conversation in the New Testament about the temple and darkness residing with light cannot happen. And everything that Paul says, suddenly it all makes sense now, doesn't it? All these things that always seem so strange and metaphorical. All right, let's finish. Why does this matter? It matters because the cosmic geography that is a result of God's judgment on the nations at Babel, sets the stage for the gospel. You see, it makes all of these things that I've known and that you've known become crystal clear in certain areas. As disciples go out into the world, the domain of Satan is transformed into God's territory. The reason that there's this great opposition 
is because what's happening on this realm is also happening in the spiritual realm. And there's a war for territory. And there's a war to thwart God's redemptive plan. The kingdom of God advances, regaining control of the nation slowly, one soul at a time. One person at a time. Every time somebody comes forward and receives Jesus as their Lord and Savior, light advances. We take a step forward. We take a step forward. Every time a child grows up and reaches an age where they're accountable for their own sins and actions and they begin to make choices, see, there's a, what hangs in the balance is their eternity, yes. But what also hangs in the balance is the territory which they tread on. In other words, which way is it going to go? The lesson is that this world is not our home. This isn't where we belong. One of the main reasons why heaven is going to be heaven is because when we get to heaven, there's not going to be any more. When the new heaven and the new earth come on the scene, there's no more. that All the land is rightly returned to the God in whom deserves it. All authority, dominion, power, and glory is His. The, the, the war's over. The battle's been won. But in the meantime, we've got to remember that darkness has permeated the globe. It's not our home. And darkness has permeated the globe. And the reality for me and you is, is that most of the places we walk, most of the places we walk, and most of the people we meet, and most of the encounters we have are with people who are bound in spiritual darkness. Unbelievers are essentially hostages of spiritual forces. They need the gospel to set them free. You see, these nations that worship these false gods and they rage against the God Yahweh, they, they hate the nation of Israel. They want, uh, with all their might, power, and authority, with all of their vast size, expansion, wealth, whatever, somehow, no matter what they do, they can't get this little dot in the middle of the land. They can't get rid of them. They can't get to them. They can't hurt them. Why? Because that ground has been claimed. And let me tell you something. There's no authority on earth that can overwhelm that authority. The authority that said, this is my ground, will vanquish all other authorities when the time comes. And so it doesn't matter what they do. They cannot get that ground because that ground belongs to Yahweh God. Always remember it is the gospel that is our weapon. The gospel is the weapon against darkness. Nothing else. What we see in our culture is this never-ending litany of things trying to stray us from the gospel. We've got entire denominations where our, our country is replete with churches that have abandoned the gospel. While I was on sabbatical, 
I was in three church services where the Bible was never even opened. What's going on here? I'll tell you what's going on. The weapon is the gospel. You abandon the gospel, you got nothing. All this nonsense talk about uh, rebuking and vanquishing uh, darkness and evil and Satan and all. Listen, you better shut your mouth. Shut it. That's not in the Bible. You got no authority to say that. Nowhere in Scripture do you or I have any authority to confront powers or principalities. It's not in there. You have the gospel. That's what you have. That's what you use. You don't need that power. You've got the weapon. You've got the bazooka that God made that can blast darkness completely out of oblivion. But if you abandon that weapon, you have nothing. The Great Commission is a spiritual battle plan. It's not a suggestion. It's not an alternative. It's not uh, something for our choice or debate or consideration. It is a plan to victory. The way to victory is the Great Commission. The weapon to victory is the gospel. Yes, the war has been won. And when will it end? It will end when what? When the last person receives Jesus. And do you know what will cause that? No brilliant ideas. No uh, ridiculous stories. No, nothing but the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what will do that. We need to view every congregation of true believers, you might want to underline true, as holy ground. Wherever there is a group of people, wherever there's a church, wherever there's a uh, 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 folks sitting around under a tree or in a basement hiding for their lives or whatever the case may be. That's holy ground where there are people who are temples of God gathered together. It's holy ground. Every congregation, no matter how small or unknown, is on the front lines of the spiritual war. Now you know That throughout this whole thing, the one thing that has permeated everything we've talked about and everything we've said is the existence and the undeniable presence of free will in all things. And so you have to understand that what we've talked about tonight, just because you're saved, just because a person says they're saved, just because people gather together in a building and the sign says church, just because I don't care what the details are, the bottom line is, if you are, then you have been called into this spiritual battle plan. But you are not forced to do anything. And you can be of zero consequence. You can take the gospel weapon that you possess and you can lay it down and you can pick up humanism you can pick up moralism you can pick up any other lame uh water gun uh weapon that you want and it won't do a thing 
Nothing. Zero. The only weapon is the gospel. Every church has the same task. I tell my class in starting point, I told them this morning, when we talk about the purpose of the church, I tell every class for the last six years the same thing. I say, listen, I don't know if God's calling you to join this church or not. That's really none of my business. But let me tell you something. You better find somewhere that preaches the gospel. You better find somewhere where the Bible's open and expounded upon and lifted high and and. And people are getting humble before it and under it and submitting to it because I wouldn't spend one second of my life anywhere where somebody's not reading and teaching the Bible because it ain't going to do any good. Nothing's going to happen. Nothing's going to change. Darkness isn't afraid because the weapon has been laid down. But before we leave tonight, let's all just remember this one thing. The powers of darkness will not prevail. They cannot prevail. Darkness can never overcome the light. The question for you tonight as we leave, and we're leaving right now, this is the question for you. Not, is the gospel a sufficient weapon? That's not the question. The question is not, Where your feet go, is that holy ground? That's not the question. The question is not, have we been called to a battle? That's not the question. The question for you tonight, as you walk out these doors to whatever God has in front of you for the rest of this week, the question for you and me is, are we engaged in the battle? Because undoubtedly, undoubtedly, just like Do not for one second miss what I'm about to say. Just like the Elohim in Psalm 82, who had everything at their disposal, who had powers and authorities beyond which we can never comprehend, and yet they rebelled against God and did their own thing and ignored the fact that there was a war going on. Don't you think for one second you and me can't do the same thing? Don't you ever think that. You better keep your nose to the plow. You better keep focused on the prize. You got to remember we're at war. It's not a game. It's not a joke. It's serious business. It's serious business. You share the gospel with people. Don't you? Let me, let me tell you something. When I'm thinking about all this and I'm praying for you and I'm, all this is weighing me down and I'm thinking of all the implications of this, I'm thinking of how many times in the past I've heard somebody look at me and say, Pastor, I'm just afraid to speak up. And I think, dear God. The implications of that statement. 